And I get to pull out my favourite pun. Yeah, the Antarctic is a melting pot. (laughs) Hello and welcome to 15 Minutes in Canberra. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth US Asia Centre. Well, welcome to 2022, and my very first guest for the podcast is Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, a lecturer of strategic studies with Deakin University for the Defence and Strategic Studies course at the Australian War College. Liz's expertise includes Arctic and Antarctic geopolitics, energy security, and Russian grand strategy. She's a non-resident fellow with the Modern War Institute at West Point Military Academy, where she contributes to Australia-US knowledge and understanding of polar geopolitics. She has also interviewed NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and been published by the Brookings Institution Press. And I hear you are also writing your third book, Liz. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hayley. (laughs) Are you excited to get into 2022? How are you um, feeling about it? I think the last three years have just merged into one. Um, mm. So, you know, it likes to the end of the tunnel of a pandemic, but I'll just keep writing books. Yes. It's a good time to write and think, isn't it? It is. When you can't go outside and it meet is. people or go to events. Just do book contracts. <laughs> That's kind of my career plan right now. So, Liz, polar geopolitics. Look, it's not a phrase I've often heard in international affairs. What first attracted you to the geopolitics of the Arctic and the Antarctic? Well, it's the last strategic frontier for great power competition when it comes to the Antarctic. Um, I hadn't really heard much about polar geopolitics. I know there's one or two uh, academics in the UK... uh, Class Dodds does some really interesting work on polar geopolitics, but I, 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 the simple answer I think was, and what I think my parents have kind of come to know of polar geopolitics, is they're lumped together as two really cold places. So polar, that's the space. Um, but the fact is, I was interested in international commons and the role um, of those global commons in great power competition. Uh, So that kind of covers off your maritime space as well, as well as space warfare. Um, And I'm just not smart enough to delve into cyber as a commons (laughs) (laughs) to get technical about it. Um, But my PhD was on Russian Arctic strategy and I was really, really fascinated with that topic. And before I'd gone into the PhD program, I was with an oil major and that company had just started expanded into offshore Arctic um, resource, well, exploration. Let's not say they're extracting yet. Um, that's been put on hold. But then I started to kind of see the parallels with Antarctica. Um, so it's a really kind of fluid story as to how I came into the polar geopolitics space. and. Mm. Yeah, I love, I love the sector. Hmm. So, Liz, we've heard about polar geopolitics and why you got interested in it, but I really don't know anything about strategic dynamics in the Arctic or Antarctica. I know that China and Russia have some interests there, but really I'm not across it. Can you please give just a basic overview of what's happening at both poles? Yeah, absolutely. So best way to think about the two ends of the earth, I think, is they are two very different strategic theatres in which great power competition and statecraft is unfolding. Um, we can go, you know, in physical characteristics, apples and oranges. I like to use that terminology. You know, both poles, both fruits, um, both round, but, you know, different 
So if we take the Arctic first of all, so North Pole, home of Santa, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, is essentially an ocean surrounded by literal seas um, and territory. We've got five key states that have Arctic circle, ter- uh, sorry, Arctic rim um, territory. Then if we go to the South Pole, um, so that's of interest to Australia, clearly just in a strategic sense uh, for geography, that's a landmass. That's the continent that we're dealing with, surrounded by obviously Southern Ocean, Antarctic Ocean. Um, there are three key, I guess, aspects to strategic competition at the ends of the earth that I'm interested in. Um, they form a bit of a trinity for my research. So we've got, first of all, great power competition. So both ends of the earth have obviously the US, they have China, and they have Russia. Why do they have the US? Well, geographically, the, we've got in Alaska in the North Pole. Yeah. And then for the South Pole, the US was one of the founding um, treaty partners. Oh. That was part of the Cold War negotiations to come up with it. And strategically, the US has a station and runs their flag at the South Pole. So because the they explored it, basically. Yes, yes. Okay. At the geographical South Pole. So their research station there reaches into all seven claims. So it's a very kind of, it's a very signal identity kind of interest there. Um, so we've got great power relations there, just presence, but also historical interest um, and long-term strategy. Into the second part of the Trinity, we've got resource interests. So resource insecurity, resources spanning fisheries at both ends of the earth. We've got precious minerals and hydrocarbons, so oil and gas. Then we have more so in the North Pole in terms of resources, trade resources, so new polar maritime routes, Mm. you know. Um, But we also have an aspect of data, right? So data is a resource, so new cables that are able to link Asia and Europe. Are these undersea communication cables? Yes, yes. So the shorter the cable, latency, you know, quicker you can send a message, um, which is crucial in financial, global financial markets. And the third aspect of the Trinity at both ends of the earth in strategic competition is the impact of climate change. So it is obviously melting the ice, so warming up the regions. So we are seeing easier access to resources. We are seeing more transport routes open up. We're also seeing um, horrific ecosystem impacts. So changes to permafrost in the north are impacting livelihoods. We have over a million people in the Russian Arctic that live there. Um, US and Canada also have indigenous peoples. Um, so their livelihoods are really you know, under impact. And then obviously with the South Pole and Antarctica, any huge melt, any of the um, ice shelves collapsing, you'd see sea level rises globally. Mm. So most of Southeast Asia, you know, is impacted by rising waters. Mm. Just a quick follow up on that one. Looking at the Antarctic, um, I know Australia owns 42% of that territory. What are the concerns that Australia has from a strategic perspective for either China or Russia's interests mm-hmm. in the Antarctic. I mean, are they interested in mining there or um, is it just for territory's sake and basing? Yeah, good question. Um, so the first thing that any Antarctic nerd listening to this podcast would do is have a heart attack that you said that Australia owns. <laughs> We're a claimant state. Um, interestingly, our closest mate, ally 
the US does not recognize our claim at all. Um, the US and Russia have their right to stake a claim to any or all of the continent protected by the treaty. Right. right. Um, so the interest for China and Russia primarily in this 42% in which we talk about for Australia is, first of all, China has um, the majority, so three of the four research bases in Antarctica are in this Australian claim territory. So they're very active there. Uh, Russia also has a number of their bases in the Australian Antarctic Territory as well, which is East Antarctica. Um, in terms of their interests, Yes, there's an aspect there for mining, for resource extraction, but commercially, number one, it's just not viable. You'd need oil well over, you know, 160, 170 a barrel, Brent crude, to extract any Antarctic mm. oil, right? Second, the Madrid Protocol, which is part of the treaty, puts that off the table. You, you can't um, exploit resources, unless it's for scientific research, which we know China is doing quite a lot of hydrographic mapping mm. resource mapping um, in Antarctica um, a big interest is obviously part of their national identity and part of their statecraft so China refers to itself as a global polar power right mm. um, they've now got an indigenous icebreaking building capability so they can even, they can get there you know Australia has one has one ship that took years to come um, the Noina, uh, Russia as well has that historical kind of identity, the great power reach um, aspect at play there. China is also interested in fresh water, so 70% of the Earth's fresh water is in Antarctica. Um, so essentially, you know, Australia is claiming just over 30% of the world's fresh water mm. for a population, you know. So we're basically putting ourselves into a, a pathway of conflict with other major powers because of the resources that are there. Absolutely, absolutely. But for now, with the treaty, legally speaking, you know, all's been good and well and we're all abiding by the treaty, my research looks at what are the testing points for that treaty collapsing. Mm. If it collapsed tomorrow, Australia does not have the capability to defend that 42% claim. And I don't think we can rely on the US who doesn't recognize Who doesn't even recognize it, which in, in itself is, is a problem. In addition to polar geopolitics, Liz, one of your areas of expertise is Russian grand strategy. Uh, we've been hearing a lot more about Russia in the news recently with a Russian troop buildup on the Ukrainian border and also demands from President Putin that not only must NATO membership not expand further, but that some Eastern European states that became members after 1997, that they be removed from the NATO agreement. How do Russia's recent actions fit in with its grand strategy? What is it actually planning long-term? And does anything that it's doing now make you think that it is actually following a grand strategy? Well, I think the first point is the tensions in Ukraine, East Eastern Europe, haven't appeared in a vacuum. I think that's the first point that we need to acknowledge. Um, this Russian threat, this Russian issue just didn't appear overnight. You know, there's so much coverage arguing that Moscow is taking advantage of US Indo-Pacific um, interests or, you know, taking advantage of rising China to, you know, be a disruptor in Europe. And, you know, yes, that's the case, but... Um, it, it, that's always been part and parcel of Russia's strategic identity, right? It's always been that issue. So I think in terms of what Russia wants is it might have tabled a laundry list of demands to NATO and to the US, but 
These are, and all parties, including Moscow, realise these are unobtainable. They are unrealistic. They are not going to happen. Mm. So then you need to ask, well, then why bother tabling them? Why bother sparking these issues? Well, this is about Washington. This is all for optics for the US. You know, we've had countless um, defence planning documents now come out under the Trump and under the Biden administrations about how China is the great power competitor you know, so this is a lot of a you know small identity issue or identity crisis, I guess, that that Moscow is uh, having. It doesn't feel it is at that level of the US to compete. Mm. Um, so do you think that's why it's making demands that would never be met, like that current members of NATO be ejected from NATO, that it's starting this at a very tough negotiating point to get more attention yeah, from the Biden Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a part and parcel of that attention. There's also a, a, a slither here about, you know, strategic relevance. It wants to remind everyone else it is a voice to be reckoned with mm. um so it's an identity project there's also i guess another subset of historical ills there is the historical linkage it has to ukraine um there is also another kind of subset of schizophrenic issues in which it is throughout history right i think thousands of years of diplomatic history this country has had of being Invaded, right? It's this fear of being encircled. And what's been interesting for me has been the focus broadly on whether or not NATO agreed not to expand back in the first place, right? And it's kind of neither here nor there because if we came up with the answer, if we had a clear cut proof of what NATO agreed to with Moscow, it wouldn't change the reality of where we are today. So I think there's this real melting pot of drivers. Um, that are kind of bringing the Ukraine issue back back on the agenda. But again, you know, they've been invading since 2014, right? Again, didn't happen in a vacuum. What's happened in the last few months has been, yes, the troop build-up, but it's also been this multi-pronged strategy in which Russia has driven up gas prices for the European Union 800%. Mm. Right? So there's a reminder there that these countries far beyond Ukraine are wedded to Russia mm. for energy security. They haven't been able to pivot away. So I guess it's a really complex kind of wicked problem is the term I like to use. Um, when it comes to overarching goals, this is just my personal kind of opinion. And, um, you know, time will tell if I'm right or wrong. And I do like being right, we'll say. <laughs> I do think this list, this list of demands that they knew were kind of a non-starter were tabled so the real strategic gain can be palatable for the West. And I think that is acknowledgement of Crimea. Mm. Because... The real strategic win for Russia when it comes to Ukraine can't economically support 40-something million people, but it needs a year-round warm water port. And that is what Crimea, into Black Sea, mm. gives Russia. Mm. That is the real win. Um, and I think that acknowledgement and kind of washing our hands, I say, of the West to let that go is is the real kind of... Hmm. Um, strategic game. in-game for Russia. So bringing the discussion now back to the Indo-Pacific region, which is where Perth US Asia Centre is located, and obviously where you and I both live, 
I'm wondering what's Russia's interest in our Indo-Pacific region because in years gone by, Australia-Russia interaction has been hostile, whether it's about um, MH17 um, or if it's about um, Russian ships coming into near Australian waters and sort of harassing or, or um, you know, overlooking Australian ships. Um, what is Russia's interest in the Indo-Pacific? So I think the first thing would be to point out the principle or the concept of Indo-Pacific is something that is completely trashed by Moscow. You know, they don't believe it is a thing. They refuse to use it um, as a terminology. They still use Asia-Pacific hmm. um, for that. So that kind of works. Their reasoning is that Indo-Pacific cuts out China Um I would say Indo-Pacific absolutely cuts out Russia, whereas Asia-Pacific allows the Asian half of Russia, because we forget the continent is Eurasian, yes. right? That Asian identity to exist. Um, so just by saying Indo-Pacific, it's almost like downgrading Russia's position within it. Yeah, it kind of makes it a subset of the world in which Russia has not got a relevant stake. And they're all about having that kind of international identity and international role. Um, historically, Russian interest has been its strong naval presence in the Indian Ocean. So if you go back through, you know, our National Archive database, you'll see all of our intelligence agencies were so worried <clears throat> about um, Soviet maritime presence in the Indian Ocean. Today though, it is much more about its um, enduring energy and arms, so military arms, uh, relationships with Asia-Pacific countries, so increasingly in the ASEAN states. So for Russia, the idea of having, you know, um, the principle of non-interference and you know sovereign democracy or you know your own statehood is something that Russia absolutely likes so it's going to cultivate that kind of sentiment um does Russia have very strong relations with Southeast Asian countries yeah absolutely oh, mainly, in, mainly in arms right so India for example is a really interesting case because for all of the talk of the quad and of um you know, increasing US-India and Australia-India ties, the fact remains that Russia's the major arms supplier, mm. right? India leases all of its nuclear subs from Russia. Um, it doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense anyway, does it? But, I mean, but that's the interesting point of any um, sort of strategic body we step up, right, including AUKUS, um, it has... AUKUS, um, the Quad, you know, any of the Five Eyes groupings, each of them have a Russia aspect. So while we can say, oh, they're, they're formulated to deal with states like Russia and China and to protect the rules-based order, in practice, a number of these organisations have strong linkages to Russia. Mm. So I guess that's, you know, one, again, one of those wicked problems you kind of have to deal with. Mm. Liz, at the end of every podcast episode, I always like to ask my guests to reflect back on their careers and talk about something that's happened to them, whether it's something funny or weird or even a bit of career advice that they would offer their younger self. So you can take it in any direction you would like, but 
Do you have a story you'd like to share looking back over the years that you have been an expert on either the Poles or Russia? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, so many. Um, I think the two that stand out because I think there's, you know, teachable lessons in both of them for other people. Um, the first one would be I was on um, PhD, <clears throat> excuse me, PhD uh, fieldwork in Moscow, and I'd sat down with a very prominent. Um, Arctic expert and about 15 minutes into this interview I realized the person at the other side of the table was convinced my research was on Antarctica oh, and that makes sense because I'm yeah. from Australia anyway so I kept bringing the discussion back to the Arctic right which was what my PhD was on and then about and he kept thinking he you were kept wrong. thinking I was wrong <laughs> Just, you know, she's got the translation mixed up she's not making sense maybe you know she's an odd australian and i think you know let it go further on and then about 25 minutes into this hour-long coffee discussion i said you know there's no treaty system in the arctic so you know how do we manage great power competition and he looked at me you know he was so he's so perplexed and he was like the antarctic treaty system how do you not know what the antarctic treaty system is like how God, how did this child get into a PhD program? <laughs> anyway, so it finally said, you know, I'm here because my PhD is on the Arctic. Um, yes, I'm from Australia. And he just could not compute, compute why <laughs> you intellectually, why I was there. Um, yeah, so that was my first kind of funny story. And the teachable moment from that, obviously, is all about communication is always key. But also... And to correct senior people. Yes, to feel confident until they start bringing out strategies for the other end of the earth. Um, but also to not ever assume that the expert, the top person in the field that you've gone to speak to, has all the answers or even is qualified mm. to the point of understanding what you're talking about. <laughs> we can often idealise the people that we read and research and expect them to know everything and not yeah. just remember they are people. A hundred percent. And I guess the second story, which I do like to tell, is I was at a very prominent um, think tank round table <clears throat> in Washington and I had just walked in and, you know, I'm, I'm all for the last minute coffee dash to the coffee urn. I'd just walked in, um, I'd already kind of set up with this, you know, crappy conference coffee and a very, very senior State Department official uh, grabbed my arm and said, oh, yes, I'll grab white with one, obviously giving me his coffee order. And I thought, gosh, this is so complex and I'm so confused I did not know how to deal with this because I was the keynote speaker <laughs> but and also young female I was young female so you know so easy it mistake could have gone easy way she's got and I okay to be fair I had a coffee cup I was tired <laughs> and instead of giving you know a feminist rant and burning my bra I just simply placed my oh, coffee gosh. cup down I left the room. By then, we were at we were at start point. Everyone had taken a seat. I stood at this conference buffet, thinking, "God, how do I 
how do I get around this? But also now I was taking on a lot of that awkwardness for this other person, right? Grabbed the coffee, just like he ordered. By then I'd walked in, everyone was quite silent. One or two people were kind of looking at me, kind of get up to the podium. So I just effortlessly walked past, popped the coffee down on uh, in front of him, kept walking up to the podium. And there was a moment I turned my back, ready to speak, and we met eyes. And this poor man, it was, it was such this look of dread. Like he didn't have any idea who I was. I mean, how can you not know who I am, my brother? <laughs> um, you know. And and then I, you know, gave my speech. Um, and afterwards, you know, he he lingered a bit behind. Obviously, wanted to talk to me and you know smooth smooth things over. But you know, it was it was a lost cause. Um, but I guess a lesson for that is, you know, a younger me a, you know, postgraduate me would have probably said something, probably said, oh, I'm not, I'm not here for coffee. I'm your keynote speaker. Mm. Um, But I think uh, with age, age and grace, right? So the lesson, I guess, from that for me has been, you know, don't own that awkwardness. Um, You can, it's best just to laugh it off. Yeah. Or to say, be happy to. And also I'm looking forward to giving the keynote speech. But that's the point, you know, um, you don't have to be nasty. And I think a lot of young women tend to feel like we have to really, you know, puff up our chest yeah. and, and bite be back. offended and bite back. And, you know, that's just not the way someone's kill it with niceness yeah. is, is the way to go. 100%. Um, he has not made that mistake. If he is listening, hello. <laughs> he has not made this mistake again. Um, but, you know, teachable moment for everyone. And... I'm, I'm sure it will happen again. Liz, I've so enjoyed speaking with you. It's been such a nice um, ease back into 2022 to speak with someone that's so knowledgeable on areas that I have absolutely no idea about that are really consequential. Um, to have someone also who's uh, doing so much work into an area that not a lot of other people are looking at and therefore you're a much more precious resource and to have such funny and insightful stories um, really remind me about why I like working in this industry. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Hayley.